Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The Fifth Column. We're back with another installment of the Fifth Column podcast. Today, I am with two distinguished gentlemen, not those lowlights who are usually here, Matt Welch and Michael Moynihan. Um, I am joined by Thomas Chatterton Williams, contributing writer at New York Times Mag, columnist at Harper's, and author of A Self-Portrait in Black and White, and Glenn Greenwald, journalist and co-founder at The Intercept, host of the System Update podcast, which is actually a YouTube show. Also the author of a very fine book, No Place to Hide, both books you should pick up. Both gentlemen are here with me, and I am grateful for that. How the heck are you guys? I'm pretty good, man. It is, it's true. It is my second time on this show, and it is so much better. The air is so much fresher without Michael and Matt. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm extra thrilled to be here, even more than I realized I would be. Uh, well, I, well, I kind of forgot to invite them, so I'll, I may get a little <laughs> Thank bit you. of hell for this. So, you know, I, I'm apologizing publicly. It, it is my own fault. You know, always doing stuff last minute. I'm, I'm actually working on my place here in Brooklyn. So there's no AC running, which is great for capturing audio. But if you notice like sweat dripping down my face, that's what's going on. Because uh, you gentlemen can see me on the Zoom video. Uh, but I wanted to get us together today um, to talk about some of the things that have been going on. Uh, unless you've been hiding under a rock, you know that there was this letter that materialized in Harper's. It was an open letter uh, about... Well, I'll let Thomas put it into context, seeing as Thomas is one of the people who was instrumental in bringing that letter into being. Um, it had about 150 signatories, and perhaps Thomas could briefly speak to, to why uh, that number. Um, but it also created a bit of controversy recently. Um, Thomas was talking about it on a program. I believe it's, it's Matt Taibbi and um, Katie Halper's podcast that you were on, right? Having that conversation. Um, and a bit of controversy was inspired by it. And I don't want to take too long to go through all of the details there, because I think it's probably been chewed over pretty well. Um, but it's probably worth um, talking a little bit about the process for identifying signatories, because your co-guest, Thomas, is someone who was not a signer to the letter. And that inspired a little bit of, well, it brought up some questions. So, Thomas, could you speak to that briefly, just sure. what the letter was yeah. about, why uh, it, it has sort of a limited number of signatories, and why you monstrously decided to leave Glenn Greenwald off of the letter? Sure. Um, just to, to contextualize it, um, on July 7th, 153 writers, academics, artists, and other public thinkers uh, signed a document called An Open Letter on Justice and Debate published in Harper's Magazine, that um, made the case that we're in a climate of censoriousness and intolerance and that uh, a, a just society is a free society and that you can't actually pursue the kind of inclusiveness and justice that we all believe in by um, constricting freedoms and that we... Uh, wanted to take a public stand on this uh, while we believe that, you know, um, 
authoritarian impulses are thriving on both the left and the right, and that Donald Trump kind of hovers above all of this and um, has a tendency to want to cancel himself. But you know, the, there was a good amount of uh, there was a good amount of criticism for the kind of um, you know I hate this term, but the woke kind of uh, censoriousness that thrives on the left as well, um, and that really has kind of captured a lot of our nations and in an international way, um, cultural and media uh, institutions. So, you know, it was something that was organized by myself, um, George Packer, Mark Lilla, Robert Wirth, and David Greenberg. And I wanted, I'm really happy to sit down with Glenn here, who's somebody that I really would have liked to have on the list. And there's been so much attention paid to what was really kind of a thoughtless comment I made uh, on, on the Rolling Stone podcast in the context of a very long conversation when I was asked why we didn't have Glenn on the list. And, you know, a lot of people, when they don't have information, the kind of Twitter conversation that goes on when we talk about especially decisions and media, there's a kind of... Um, rush to think that everything is so uh, meticulously planned and thought out and thorough and everything is done for a reason. And what actually happened is when, you know, uh, this, I, I said that, you know, I would have liked to reach out to Glenn. And I think my language on the podcast was that I was outvoted. In fact, that's not even true. I went and talked with the other guys and we looked at the email um, chain. What happened was I suggested we reach out to Glenn and um, I was supposed to get back to him and it didn't happen. And by the time that we reached 150 people, we capped it. And there were many people that we actually ended up leaving off. So it's just human error. There really wasn't a lot of thought to it. Everybody said, you do this, you do this, and you do this. And when it came to me, I didn't reach out to several people, including Matt Taibbi too, who I didn't have the email address of in time. And once the letter was published, realized that he would have been somebody that I also should have reached out to. I can name a dozen people and maybe five to 10 of the most prominent names that could have been on the list um, contacted us after the fact, asking why they weren't contacted. And we felt horrible about that too, because we would have loved to have um, all of these people kind of affirming these uh, values that we believe in and that we believe don't actually um, have ideological um, litmus tests attached to them. So I'm sorry, Glenn, and I'm glad to sit down with you here now. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, I don't, you know, feel like I merited an apology. I don't think there was an obligation to include me. I knew the minute that I uh, saw on Twitter this this kind of effort to suggest that there was some kind of coordinated uh, vote to kind of keep me off of the letter that it was a going to be weaponized against the letter by critics of it to say oh aha look they're hypocrites they can't even adhere to their own values this letter mm -hmm. is anti-cancellation and yet they're deplatforming going greenwald because they're not comfortable being on the letter with him when it was obvious to me that that wasn't really what happened i went to sleep hoping that the tweets noting that little snippet of yours um would be unnoticed that was obviously naive i knew that that was a false hope and i woke up and the whole thing had exploded and it was clear to me that i mean you know i've seen from these open letters before that the way they get organized is it's much more driven by disorder and disorganization than it is some kind of like Politburo type discipline where every name appears before a council or a committee and everyone is voted yay or nay. And it was funny because some of the most um, 
likely suspects of the people that people were speculating had been the ones to veto me, wrote to me saying, oh, it wasn't me, I promise. I It didn't work that way. People with whom I've had nothing but animosity for years who suddenly were, were um, you know, speaking to me in a constructive way. Look, you know, I, I, I do think I was an obvious choice to be on the letter in part because the, the principles it espouses have been central to my work for decades, both as a, as a lawyer and then as a journalist. I also think that one of the critiques of the you know, group of signatories, and it's very difficult to do it perfectly, was that there, that there was obviously an effort to bring a kind of diversity to the signers that was necessary. But I don't think it fully succeeded in that regard. I mean, there was obviously like racial and ethnic diversity, but I don't think there was much ideological diversity. Um, there were no Trump supporters, right? The first paragraph declared Trump the kind of overarching evil, which made it almost impossible for any Trump supporters to sign on. I don't even know if there was an effort made. So already there's that that whole sector that's kind of eliminated. And one of the reasons why Chomsky signing became such a big deal is because there weren't very many leftists who had signed on as well. To me, this was kind of a very centrist, kind of mainstream, status quo defending group of people, like illustrated, I would say, by people like George Packer and Ann Applebaum and ultimately J.K. Rowling, people who obviously hate Trump, hate right-wing nationalism, also think far left politics is icky and authoritarian. So, you know, I think I, my, my being added would have brought some diversity as well, but I really don't care. I'm not even sure I would have signed it only because just in general, my view is I have a lot of platforms to express myself in. Um, I generally don't feel comfortable signing on to other people's words, um, especially ones that have to be massaged by committee to attract as many people as possible. But I certainly was supportive of the letter and the principles in it and still am um, and don't think it's a big deal at all or even that interesting that I ended up not being a signer. And I do fully believe it was far more a byproduct of this kind of messiness of how this process works than any sort of concerted violation of the principles of the letter to exclude me. Yeah, I just want to shout out Matt Carp also, who was a, a leftist on the letter, and there are others, you know. But the the ideological diversity, it was difficult for any of us who were reaching out to people to know um, staunch and serious Trump supporters who are also staunch and serious supporters of liberal values and open debate and maximum tolerance. Uh, there may be some out there, but it's also a human endeavor where um, we don't know i don't i don't know any i don't know of any do you a trump supporter who oh, is trump supporters who i mean you know i think tucker carlson is probably a good example whether he's really a trump supporter or not you could debate i mean in general i think he's regarded as one and he's certainly a pretty vehement defender of free discourse um he defended me, for example, very vocally when the Brazilian government was trying first, when it was threatening to imprison me and then when they tried to, um, knowing that, you know, Fox News has a big presence among the Brazilian right um, and it made a big impact. And he's done that before in other instances. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, 
I don't think it's a big deal. Again, I think that, you know, the group of people with whom you be, who you started with and who kind of was the nub of the effort are people who are kind of ideologically similar. And, and so it's difficult to, to reach out really far from those precincts because the people they know are going to be people closer to them. But there was, as you said, there were real leftists on the letter. Um, there were conservatives on the letter. And then there were, there were centrists on the letter. So there was ideological diversity. Um, I'm just saying, I think there could have been more. Um, and I think maybe the letter would have been more effective and potent and not provoking this kind of cynicism about what its ultimate motives were, had it not been heavily represented with these kind of mainstream centrist status quo representatives who seem many of them, of course, to have been quite comfortable in the past with the kind of restrictions on free discourse that now that their own views are kind of endangered, they suddenly seem more concerned about. I think that was a critique of the letter that maybe distracted from the principles that could have been avoided had there just been more ideological diversity. But I know how hard it is when, you know, you're trying to get people to sign on to what is going to be a controversial letter, not just organizationally difficult, but also difficult to persuade people to sign on. So, um, you know, I think overall there was a, it was a good effort. Thank you. It was it's organizationally so challenging, but also I've just become skeptical in the weeks since the letter came out to the notion that had we had some other people or done it this way, that um, it would have been like met in some of the quarters where the criticism has been coming from with a different reaction, because many of these people, they just completely ignore um, like the presence of Dwayne Betts, or they say it's just like white guys who are mad at getting tweeted at, but like Orlando Patton at Harvard University uh, has never been on Twitter or cared about, <laughs> about what's going on in Twitter, or they just ignore the presence of Roya Hakekian, who's a refugee, or Kian Tashbakhsh, I'm going to butcher his last name, of Colombia, who was imprisoned in Iran, and all of these. And even like, even like, even like Dyla Lithwick, who's like a super beloved, adored, perfect liberal. Yes. Right. Like a good left liberal. You just ignore her. Um, you know, not, you know, she was on there. Katha Pollitt, you know, a radical feminist for decades from the nation was on there. So I agree with you completely. I think that we have, you know, I think it's important to be realistic about what the latter was intended to do, which is not defend free speech and free discourse principles in a vacuum, but instead to oppose the specific current and very identifiable efforts to regulate speech at this moment. And even though it didn't say that, that was the obvious context for the letter. It was going to be understood that way, no matter what you did, no matter who signed it. And therefore, anyone comfortable with and happy about the current restrictions being imposed on discourse, we're going to find ways to attack the letter no matter what you did, because the letter was not this anodyne vapid, empty letter, nor was it intended to be. It was intended to be a polemical statement opposing a particular political development and trend that a lot of people support. And whoever supported it was obviously going to oppose any letter denouncing it. So I think you're right that, you know, a lot of this is just about finding flaws in the letter on purpose by people who actually hate the content and the the, the actual project. That's absolutely 100% correct. And, and I thank you for saying that. And I wonder... Um, what the language is that unites 
people who are uncomfortable with the censorious trends in the culture, either from the right or the left, and people who are comfortable with it. Because I think that the, the, the easy, simplistic language of left and right uh, breaks down when we try to talk about this issue. Here, here's the, 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 the critique that I do think is most valid. It's one that I share as well, which is, of course, you, you can separate the content of the letter from the signers in principle, right? Like if you had like David Duke and Richard Spencer and, you know, like Pol Pot signed the letter, <laughs> it wouldn't necessarily in the abstract alter the content of the letter itself, right? The letter of the, speaks for itself in one limited abstract narrow sense. But in the more realistic sense, as I was saying earlier, of course, there's a political project. There's a, there's a polemical position being taken that is shaped by the current debate. And it is true that there are a lot of people on that letter who have either been indifferent towards or supportive of or even perpetrators of the kinds of restrictions on free discourse that the letter purports to find so troubling. And that does lead to the question about whether this letter was really about defending these principles in general or whether it was about preserving the prerogatives and the kind of freedoms that these particular elites have always enjoyed and now suddenly feel that they're losing. That I do think, whether it impugns the letter or not, is a legitimate question surrounding the letter itself. That's a that's an interesting conversation to have. And the idea that um, people can evolve and people can come to understand that views that they used to hold or, or, or um, aspects of the kind of constricting discourse that they used to engage in were mistaken and led to a worse culture that they've only now come to understand, I think we have to allow um, that kind of growth too. And that would be very much in the spirit of the letter. And, and I, I think we can perhaps extend this conversation a little bit more because I, I think the point that you're making, Glenn, actually underscores something that I've thought a lot about since the letter was published and um, in the ensuing weeks uh, of criticism, just the question of exactly what represents cancel culture. Um, what's consistent with opposition to cancel culture. And I, I should say, and this is not the first time I've said it, that I'm, I, I'm pretty uncomfortable with the phrase and I have not figured out another phrase that I would prefer to use in its place just yet. Um, but it seems like the sort of thing that is like very portable um, and memeable, kind of like fake news, uh, which also makes it seem sort of ridiculous uh, and, and almost petty. Or like hate speech or, or hate speech or terrorism, yeah. like just these overarching all-purpose terms that seem like really significant, but that have no meaning and therefore no consistent application, as you said, just are completely malleable. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think even the phrase itself, cancel culture, the, the emphasis in most of the discourse tends to be on, and, and I suppose I'm stating my own position here about what cancel culture is, or at least hinting at it, um, the discourse tends to focus on the cancellation itself um, and not so much the culture, the culture component. And the culture is what concerns me. I'm someone who for a very long time has thought that there are, of course, things that you cannot say without taking some risks. And I don't have any expectation that people who are 
um, iconoclasts or heterodox thinkers who are advocating for some new perspective won't have to in- encounter some sort of cultural resistance. Um, and I, I don't have any objection to sort of publicly confronting people. And I do imagine that there are sort of lines that essentially get created um, in terms of the sort of parameters of generally acceptable thought and the sort of things that an employer is willing to sort of tolerate their employees thinking and the sort of thing that they're probably not willing to tolerate. Like if you're an out Holocaust denier, or, or, like that may, it may be difficult for you to find and maintain employment in the United States of America today. Um, and I don't know that I have a huge problem with that. At least if I put it another way, it's not any one instance of cancellation that has me concerned so much as a culture that seems to be kind of bloodthirsty, that, that seems to prefer uh, the guillotine and excommunications to the genuinely difficult work of trying to persuade people and evangelize and actually achieving a couple of conversions. So I wonder if you, you both could speak to that. Like, what is cancel culture and what, what exactly constitutes hypocrisy in this context? Can I just say that we uh, avoided using that term in the letter uh, for a yeah. reason? Because it's really been co-opted and kind of destroyed uh, most recently by Donald Trump, you know, in a cynical way. But just because Trump uh, cynically exploits something doesn't mean that the thing that he's using the term to describe doesn't exist at all Mm in the the wider world. And so I I agree with you. Like A common critique is like there's no such thing as cancel culture. And then you point out an incident and people are like, well, but that was deserved. That was just accountability. So so focusing on. Uh, itself can be a kind of uh, Sisyphean task trying to get people to see why that matters. Focusing on a culture that celebrates uh, public humiliation, shaming, punitiveness um, is a much more worthwhile kind of argument to have. I think that what's so disturbing about whatever we're calling cancel culture is that um, it's exacerbated by the by the social media um, technology that makes our public square um, so enormous and capable of uh, targeting somebody um, instantaneously and whipping up um, a fervor for which we're not really built to, to endure, most of us. Most people cannot handle 1,000 people critiquing them at the same time and pouring over um, all manner of, of innocuous and, and, and trivial things they may have said, um, dating back to the advent of Twitter. It's just it's an enormous... Um, punitive tool at the disposal of, uh, of, of, of a mass of people that really is, in fact, no one. You know, the punitiveness is an impulse that passes through um, many different people at a time and takes shape and, and, and destroys people and moves on. So culture really has to involve this aspect. It, it's not just um, accountable. It's not someone getting fired. It has to involve this um, aspect of somebody trips over a norm, oftentimes one that has not yet been fully established. Um, it's not in the, it's not, it is different than actually, uh, being Tucker Carlson's lead writer and having an alter ego who publishes super racist stuff under a, under a pseudonym. That's probably in violation. I'm pretty sure that's in violation of the actual, um, work contract that person would have. Um, cancel culture is usually tripping but, over but, something. But let me, let me, let me just stop you there. Cause I, I think it's a really important point. Let's assume there was no Fox contractual prohibition on doing whatever he did. And it was discovered that he was writing this supremely racist stuff, as was discovered. 
and Fox fired him over it because they didn't want to be associated with those views. Is that, in your view, an example of A, cancel culture, and B, an illegitimate attempt to restrict the discourse or punish people for holding dissident views? And if it's not an illegitimate example of that, why isn't it? Sure. I would say that that trips over a very well and long-established norm in mainstream uh, society, that you cannot actually um, write the kind of racist comments that this person was writing uh, without there being um, real repercussions. Um, so I would call that actually, that doesn't involve the kind of thing that, uh, we seem to mean when we talk about cancel culture, which is that you're tripping over and being made an example of for violating not yet solidified norms. You're, these are norms that are still, um, in, and that's why it's so important to actually call out this behavior, um, because you don't need to convince many people that what the writer for Tucker Carlson, Blake Neff, uh, did, you don't have to convince people that this is wrong. You, what you do in cancel culture is you identify someone, call them out, whip up a mob that then targets and pressures their employer to, as a process, as part of a process of establishing this norm and mm -hmm. silencing those and telling those who might contest the solidification of this new norm. And so I think that's a very, very important component to it, as is the whipped up social media outrage that targets the employer. And then the final aspect of it is a kind of stigmatization, a stigma that attaches to the person that's being cast out of polite society for this for tripping over this new norm. And that stigma uh, follows the person beyond just the job that they've now lost or the board seat that they've lost. And that person is supposed to be outside of the circle of um, of respectability now. And, 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 and it's, it's wildly um, kind of, uh, then, the, then, the, then the whole thing moves on and that person's life is destroyed and we're still debating on whether this is even wrong what happened. Well, one thing I'd quickly underscore about that, that particular instance is uh, just with racism in particular, like it has, it's achieved this elasticity of meaning and none of the megatonnage that's associated with allegations of racism has seemingly been altered. It's, it's racism apparently re re refers to like the entire uh, culture um, that we move and exist in and virtually anything can be described as racist depending on the person who's making the allegation. And considering that the allegations are becoming increasingly difficult to dispute because even to dispute an allegation of racism um, in some instances is presumed to be or suggest, it's suggested that it is racist. Um, that, that trap um, is part of what's made me increasingly nervous about the culture. Yeah. You know, I think uh, just a couple of points in, and I hate the term cancel culture for the reason Camille said, and I also did notice that the, the letter avoided it. And I was glad to see that. Um, but nonetheless, we're talking about the same thing, whether we use the phrase or not. And it, and it, and, and it's not a very precise, concept, whatever we call it, exactly because there are instances where we do view certain opinions and certain perspectives as being so indisputably repellent that it not only is legitimate, but almost ethically required to dissociate oneself from the person who's espousing those views, as Fox did in the case of Blake Knapp, or as CBS did in the case of Nick Cannon with those anti-Semitic remarks, and those sorts of things. So nobody believes 
in any of these kinds of principles in their absolutist expression, which always makes the discussion more difficult because it involves nuance and degree and where lines are drawn and the like. It's much easier when you can just kind of defend an absolutist principle the way I would, for example, if we were talking about state punishment for speech, right? Like no matter how overtly racist expression is, I'm against the state Mm -hmm. punishing a person for expressing the ideas, but that doesn't apply to employers disassociating themselves by firing people or administrations deciding that they don't want their campuses being a platform for those kind of people. Um, We all want to have those associational rights to refuse to participate in something with somebody who holds those views. And, and, And I don't think it's censorious. I think it's just kind of ethical behavior. Um, I think Camille's point is correct that the problem has become that all of these terms, homophobia, xenophobia, racism, transphobia, have expanded so aggressively to essentially mean anything that deviates from the pieties and orthodoxies of any particular small Hmm. faction wielding this power, that that's where the problem comes from, is from the kind of mission creep of that principle that I just articulated. The other point that I think is really worth making is I do think we need to be careful that this doesn't become a just a kind of dressed up, prettified um, campaign by elites to invoke noble principles in order to shield themselves from criticism. I mean, I remember going mm-hmm. back to 2005 when I began writing on a blog uh, that was kind of the advent of blogs. And one of the things blogs were doing was we were very critical of how journalists, professional journalists, were reporting the news. And we were very vocal about it. And we started building big audiences for it. And for the first time, these big time, you know, meet the press hosts and network news anchors and New York Times op-ed columnists like Tom Friedman and Maureen Dowd were hearing aggressive condemnations of their work for the first time. The only, you know, thing that they ever used to hear at most was some letter to the editor that would get thrown on the last page of the paper and they would all ignore or mock and that would be it. And they would just hear praise. And it created this cultural conflict where these journalists were saying blogs are going to destroy journalism because um, it's making it so that we can't even report in a way that offends this group or that group. There was this cultural clash where Mm -hmm. these people who for so long enjoyed this shielded prerogative of, of this platform, this privilege, for the first time felt like they were being besieged, not with... Uh, career destruction, but with criticism. And I do think that still is part of what's going on. I don't think J.K. Rowling is a victim um, because she's taken a position on a very inflammatory debate with some very strong views and therefore gets some very harsh criticism. I don't, you know, when I wake up in the morning, think about Um, the fact that on my list of concerns is that a billionaire who's beloved by millions all over the world and has access to whatever platform she wants is getting criticized, even if that criticism is unfair or harsher than it should be, because I'd rather err on the side of having elites be excessively criticized than criticized too little. What I think is the nub of this concern, at least for me, is that What this does is it sets an example 
so that when you watch people like J.K. Rowling or whoever, you know, David Frum or whoever the kind of elite victim of the day is on Twitter who's been unfairly attacked and demonized but still has a, a great job and is in no danger of losing their economic security – the message it sends to people who have no platform, who have no power, who have no position, is that you can't step out of line because this will be done to you, but you don't have those same defenses. And I think it's very important that if we want to communicate this cause as something other than just an effort to protect elites who seem whiny about being criticized, the focus needs to be on the way in which this is impacting and constricting the ability of people in workplaces, in newsrooms, in academic facilities to be able to communicate freely and not focus it on the big, famous, powerful, rich people who are getting called me names. I agree with you 100% uh, on that. And I think that what is a testament to why this letter is resonating for weeks in multiple countries right now is, um, is the amount of mail that we've all been getting from people like you're describing saying, thank you, no one would ever ask me to sign an open letter. You don't know my name, but like, this is a problem affecting me. And I don't think any of the famous and people on the list would say that they're victims. I think that most of them understood that what they were doing was using some of their cachet to defend people who um, wouldn't be able to um, start an international conversation over the kind of um, censoriousness that they're feeling in their workplace. Uh, David Brooks had a column today citing um, a poll that showed 62% of Americans are afraid to say what they actually think on many issues uh, for fear of losing their livelihoods. Uh, that, that is, that's an important part of um, the definition of cancel culture that I don't know if I made explicit enough. It's um, not about uh, taking heat on Twitter. I think you more than me and Camille, but me and Camille can intuit what you go through on a smaller scale. We all understand what taking heat is like. I don't care about that. It doesn't bother me uh, really at all. But it's the, it's, it's the heat attached to your livelihood that um, is extremely troubling. And the idea now that um, it's okay to try to um, take away someone's employment as a as a method of enforcing conformity of thought that I think is extraordinarily chilling. I've been thinking a lot about this definition. I wrote an article last week trying to grapple with these with 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 what we're talking about because, um, like I said, it's so much easier in the context of the work that I've done mostly, which is state censorship. Um, because here we're talking about more grade, you know, more subtle gradations. So there was this event, this episode that, that to me illustrates the point really well. Um, I was working on a film about Martina Navratilova because she was my childhood hero and it was designed to kind of explore why that was. And the first director we chose with whom we were working was Kimberly Pierce, who directed this groundbreaking film in 1995 called, or in 2000, called Boys Don't Cry, which was about a trans boy um, who had been murdered in Kansas. Um, Brandon Tina was, was his name. Um, at a time when Hollywood was making no films about trans people, um, when people barely even understood or knew that there was such a thing as a female to male transition. It was always male to female to the extent it was talked about at all. The film was made for no money. 
Kim was in her mid twenties. Um, it ended up, you know, being nominated for multiple Academy Awards. Hilary Swank won the Best Actress Award. It was ground- groundbreaking on every level. Like the first Hollywood film that brought trans village visibility to light in an incredibly, you know, sympathetic and, and and empathetic way. I mean, Kim talked about how she made the film because she fell in love with Brandon Tina and it brought trans visibility into these mainstream discussions for the very first time. And then Kim herself at the time was identifying as lesbian and subsequently came out as gender non-binary. She would start, you know, she cropped her hair. She would wear tuxedos to the Oscars and bring uh, her, her female dates. And when she went to speak at Reed college, she was invited to go to speak at Reed college in Oregon about her film to show boys don't cry and then to speak about the film, she was shouted down for two and a half hours by trans activists who were accusing her of being transphobic by having casted a cis woman in the role of Brandon Tina instead of a trans male actor, which barely existed at the time. Um, even though she made Hillary Swank live as a male for months in order to do the role and she won a fucking Oscar, kind of a tribute to the fact that she did a decent job of, of portraying Brandon. So the enemy of the trans movement became this groundbreaking gender non-binary actress who made the first ever film that brought trans visibility to light. But the more important point to me was, look, if you want to have the debate about whether it's wrong to cast cis women in the role of trans characters or whatever i think it's a stupid debate but it's one that i think everyone should have the right to have have at that debate that wasn't what they were doing though they were screaming and making clear they had first spent the week tearing down the posters for the event so that nobody would know that the event was taking place and then they went there with the specific intention which they succeeded in doing of making it so she couldn't speak so this is the difference, you know, I've been hearing on Twitter with like Matt Taibbi's week long def- defense of the letter that, oh, this is just about us now being able to criticize as well. You know, us, the voiceless, and you're just angry that we now have a voice. But that's bullshit. That's not what this is. What cancel culture is to the extent that, you know, we can define it is exactly the opposite of, oh, I want to have a voice as well and be able to criticize the elite. It's a shutting down of the debate. It's an insistence that these views not be aired, not be heard, because they're deemed so inherently evil that they're not even worthy of an airing. And as you said earlier, Thomas, it's, it's, it, there's certain views that do deserve that, but we want to minimize, you know, draw a really restrictive line on what views we declare is so inherently evil that they're off limits. Th- things that are ongoing, vibrant debates have to be aired um, in order to um, have a meaningful analysis and ultimately to succeed. And I think that to me is the, is the crux of the problem is it's the issue versus, yes, debate aggressively, call people names, denounce them, protest, do all of that, but have that dialogue. And this isn't about that, this movement, this culture. It's about, it's exactly about the opposite, about shutting it down. That's absolutely right. So I think it's actually like, to say that this is about where to draw the line, as a lot of people like to say, we all believe in the same thing. It's not a difference in principles. It's a difference in where we draw the line is actually um, completely wrong. It's, 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 it's a, it's a debate agreement about those who want to shut things down and minimize amount of permissible views or opinions or speech. And those who believe in maximal 
um, expression and don't want to shut down. Um, that's a full stop philosophical difference that the way to, that, that, that the idea that some ideas are so dangerous that they have to be eradicated and the people who have expressed them have to be eradicated. It's not just about where the line is drawn. And, and just to quickly add one other distinction, which is, you know, and I do think this is a critical distinction as well is there's also a distinction between declaring certain views off limits to the extent that, okay, we've decided this view is no longer, um, one that merits a hearing because it's now rejected things like race science or, you know, whether um, gay people deserve to live openly with dignity or whether women have the same competence as men to do certain jobs. We've kind of resolved those issues. And so we feel like we don't need to keep, we don't need to debate those. We shouldn't be debating those. It's another thing entirely though, to say that what, that if a person has a view that I really find objectionable that I'm going to declare not just that view to be contemptible. I'm going to declare the person who's Mm -hmm. advocating that view in all instances to essentially be drained of all human worth. No, I've I've actually given a lot of thought to that. Um, And a a story I've shared on the podcast before I was raised evangelical Christian as many people have been. And as a result, one of the things that I believed well into my collegiate career um, was that homosexuality was wrong. And a a result of that, and perhaps it's not a necessary result of that, is not really cultivating a great deal of empathy for gay people and for the struggles that they endured. And there's a process, like moving someone from that position to actually having them become someone who like, can come to appreciate the fact that like all love is love. Um, and I don't know that the best mechanism for getting there uh, in most instances is to shame people and to not, not merely shame them, but to, to really set out to destroy them and to establish them as completely retrograde. Um, I, I really do think that there is something to the project of compassionate outreach and trying to engage with people. And I, I've been thinking a lot about the different places where that might be possible, the different ways I personally and that we in general might be able to facilitate that sort of thing, um, because I, I don't think it happens enough. It, it really does feel as though for the most part, the goal, the project that we've mostly adopted is to just destroy all of the people with the bad ideas to silence them and to, to put them off limits on some island where they can't infect us with their bad ideas. And that, that is a bit frightening to me. And similarly, in the current context, and by current context, I mean, you know, this global pandemic, all of the political uncertainty that exists here in the United States and around the world. One of the reasons I think this is worthwhile to talk about now is because of I think um, it's I think it's Wes Yang who I, I stole this from who um, uses the phrase in his uh, very fine book The Souls of Yellow Folks and I want to get him on the podcast soon too but he describes it as like sort of the, t- the totalitarian potential of like these well intentioned sentiments uh, around protecting certain classes of people and a new set of norms um, that are used to try and police speech. And I worry about that totalitarian potential. I worry about us not having the sort of cultural gag reflex 
to people getting sort of bounced from their jobs or having their entire lives destroyed because they said something inelegant uh, on a YouTube video that just went global and us not being able to have any sympathy whatsoever for that person who finds themselves, you know, jobless and friendless and global persona non grata for some period of time. Um, so I don't, I don't know if the, either of you have thoughts on that and on how we might be able to deal with people who, who have perhaps sort of even objectively foul opinions on things, but are perhaps also not bad actors. Like they're people who have the capacity to change their minds if we can appeal to them. Well, we know that attacking people makes them defensive. When you tell somebody that their view is wrong and, and that they are wrong um, and bad for having the view, people don't just say, oh, well, you know, thank you for showing me that I am bad and come around to it. They, they get defensive and they dig their heels in. Um, I think that at a time when norms are changing so rapidly, we have to always be mindful of having the maximum kind of generosity and humility um, in, in understanding that, you know, Five years ago, we didn't use the term systemic racism with the frequency and white supremacy in all of our um, mainstream publications the way we do now. We have an evolving sense of racism that has gone quite far from when George Bush was able to describe it as like hatred that you have in your heart, essentially. Mm -hmm. And most Americans thought that to now understanding that there's lots of racism without racists and it's systemic in nature. You have to give people a chance to catch up. And that means that you have to be a bit modest about um, how much you know of the world and how much you know of um, what people are capable of understanding and how quickly they should uh, be able to flip their entire sense of reality. I think when we're in the process of shifting what James Baldwin called systems of reality, um, you just that doesn't happen overnight, no matter how much we want the, the, the progress to happen. Um, you just have to have a kind of humility that is lacking um, in this kind of Manichaean vision of good people and bad people. I'm really struck by the example that Glenn brought up because it's not even even a case of saying that the person had bad ideas. It's, 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 it's something quite different than that. It's saying that this person who's even on our side um, wasn't on our side enough as we think they should have been on our side. And the example that kind of really was in my mind when I was thinking of in the early stages of the letter was the, was the Poetry Foundation, where um, the, the, there, there was an open letter of, uh, demanding that the chairman of the board and the president um, resign because they had released after the death of George Floyd, they had released a statement in support of Black Lives Matter, saying that the organization stood with Black Lives Matter. And they were denounced for having released a statement in support that was simply too tepid. It, it, was, it was not fervent enough in support and they lost their jobs, they did resign. This is a climate that terrifies me. And I know that we have to be careful with a term like terrified, but it's really, really scary to think that you can actually have professional repercussions, not even for doing something wrong. It's, it, it can't be the world that we're trying to create. That can't be progress. Yeah. I mean, and this is, you know, what Camille was saying uh, a little bit ago, I think is incredibly important to think about too, because I have been hearing ever since the Harper letter came out, you know, people are kind of at the point of saying, okay, enough of this. I mean, there's a pandemic going on. There's like a, unemployment crisis there's like a worldwide protest movement who gives a shit about this it's like it's petty and trivial and the reason i think it's so not the case is well first of all just for an easy reason which is that 
the graver the crises we face, the more important it is, I think, that we all have the ability freely to communicate and to explore what new ideas we're going to embrace and new solutions and how we're going to bridge the gap between what these crises are doing and upending our lives. I think it's more important than ever that we have, as the world changes, the more changes that are happening, the more rapid and fundamental they are, the more important than ever it is that we're liberated to be able to think differently and, and in a new way, as opposed to being imprisoned in pieties and ossified orthodoxies. But I think the deeper point is about how we uh, think about one another as human beings and the complexities that we all have and the different sides of us that each of us possess with very few exceptions, like sociopaths and psychopaths who, you know, have no good side to them by definition because they're just, their, their brain is broken. A tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of, of mm-hmm. the human population, everybody else, there's great complexity. I just want to share a couple things about that. So my trajectory was kind of the, like parallel mirror opposite of the one Camille described, which is, you know, I grew up with the caricature of evangelicals that a lot of like coastal elites have. I grew up in a working-class neighborhood, but from a Jewish background, I didn't know any evangelicals. I can't, you know, my, my grandparents were my big influence. They were like 1930 Jewish socialists who, you know, loved, F, loved FDR and were George McGovern. And so like anything that was like moral majority, social conservatism was like this icky kind of tyrannical evil attempt to, you know, control people's private lives. Um, and then when I, you know, went to school in Washington, D.C. And, and, and then law school in New York, it became even more reinforced that evangelicals were these primitive, you know, just the standard cliche that, that, that coastal liberals have of, of how evangelicals reason and think and function and, and who they are. And then what happened was one time I, uh, I had a roommate in, in law school and she was my best friend and she went, she was dating this guy in Massachusetts and she went and stayed with him for the weekend. And it turned out that his mother was this hardcore Rush Limbaugh fanatic. It was in the mid-1990s, and she was using this internet forum on CompuServe, which is how people access the internet, that was sponsored by the National Review and the Heritage Foundation. And these were hardcore social conservatives. And she came back and she said, oh, you, there's this forum. They're all like crazy right-wing. And they, they weren't like nice libertarian conservatives. They were like, <laughs> like you know, Marietta moms who were like, you know, saying that homosexuality and abortion were sins that were going to send us all to hell. So she's like, you have to go in there and fuck with them and, you know, just go in there and just like drive them crazy. So I was like, yeah, totally. Let me do that. And I went in and I started just purposely provoking them and saying offensive things and just like, you know, attacking them constantly. And kind of each day that went by and I kept going back, the conversation started getting like a little bit more civil, like a little bit more respectful. Wow. And I was just as weird to them as they were to me. I mean, I was at the time as a gay lawyer working in a Wall Street firm in Manhattan, living with a man in like a marital relationship. So they were just as weird to me as I was to them. And then over time, you know, I found these people with whom I could have these kinds of like, you know, contentious, but like respectful. And I I learned a lot more about how they think. And then at the end of the year, they have this get together, like always in the middle of the country. It was in some like suburb in Indianapolis. And I said, you know what? I'm told my friends, I was like, I'm going to go. And they were like, are you fucking crazy? You're, they're going to kill you. (laughs) They're going to murder you. You can't go. You know, it's one thing to talk to them 
online, but you can't like go to like Indianapolis to a Marriott. And, but of course I went and they were incredibly warm. We like laughed, we shit found like common ground. I mean, it sounds very trite, but it taught me that like these kind of characters about other people that I had of them at the beginning, that they were just like these evil, hateful bigots. A lot of it is just like, how we're shaped culturally, the the kind of randomness of where we come from. Like had Camille grown up differently, had I grown up differently, we would have had different views and we can always find the good in, in, in one another. Let me just add like one really quick story that I just find so profound. It's like the only thing Joe Biden has ever said that has ever stuck with me in a positive way. He described how like when he got to the Senate, you know, he was elected to the Senate when he was 29 years old. It was in the kind of Reagan era and at the time, Jesse Helms was like the evil right wing figure in the Senate. And Joe Biden was in his like firebrand days of like being a, you know, a kind of like 70s, 80s liberal. And he like was hating Jesse Helms and the kind of dean of the Senate, Mike Mansfeld, came up to him and said, um, look, I hate Jesse Helms' ideology as much as you do. Jesse Helms probably is a racist, not probably like is. He uses racial division and all of that. But I just want to tell you a story about who he is as a person, just so that you some so that you reflect on the differences between having a terrible political ideology and the complexities of a human being. Jesse Helms and his wife had, I think, five of their own children biologically, were never rich. Like he was always, you know, living on a public salary. And they read about in the paper the story of this girl who was extremely developmentally disabled with Down syndrome, like a a severe case of Down syndrome. And her parents just couldn't take care of her and gave her up. And she was in this like foster care system in a state facility, not, you know, just being kept alive, no love. And Jesse Helms and his wife went and adopted her and took care of her for the rest of her life, you know, gave her love and affection. I mean, with already with five kids now, whatever you think about his politics, you can't say like that, you know, there's parts of him that are bad, but clearly there's, there has to be something really loving and kind and compassionate and benevolent for someone to go and do that. And that's one of the things that we've lost with the way we have our discourse. You know, the, I'm amazed at like how easily and casually in our social media discourse and our political discourse, people get dismissed as, oh, that's a trash person. That person has no value. That person is garbage. Fuck them. You know, the, it's just, it's like, there's just no humanity to the way that we're interacting. And I think like in a pandemic, when people are suffering, mm-hmm. when it's a global problem, the need to have this kind of more humanistic interaction with one another, which requires empathy and tolerance for different views is more important than ever. That's why I think it's so important to talk about this now. Yeah, I dig that. Um, so I've got a couple of different thoughts about where to push the conversation um, now. Um, one thing I am thinking about is the the hypocrisy that you sort of alluded to early on, Glenn, both in terms of the allegation that's been leveled at signatories of the letter. And perhaps I suspect that I think I hear it in, when you're explaining it. Actually, I don't think. I know I hear it when you're explaining your perspective on things that you perceive some hypocrisy amongst the signatories. I could just directly ask who and under what certain with respect to what circumstances, but I'm thinking about one thing in particular that's pretty high profile, like the J.K. Rowling's 
suit. I don't know if it's a libel suit or a defamation suit. You're the lawyer, Glenn. You can tell me what the difference is between those two things. But there is a suit that was filed against, uh, I believe, a website for children in Britain. And there was some post and related article that suggested that some of J.K. Rowling's remarks would potentially hurt trans people and asked, what do we do with problematic authors and artists like Rowling? And I believe, I can't remember who they equated her to, but one of whom was like a Nazi sympathizer and the other was someone who had like defended like something like sexual assault. So it's like pretty dodgy stuff. Are these things equivalent? I don't know. We don't need to adjudicate that here. But I think what is interesting is this question of whether or not pushing back against the publication that is saying that your views are bad and perhaps you should be boycotted um, or, yeah, I don't know if that constitutes a contradiction, a deviation from the principles that are outlined in the letter. And I wonder what you gentlemen make of that. Can I just say, you have to be able to defend your good name. That's what's at stake. Um, People are trying to ruin reputations. J.K. Rowling is such an outlier in this conversation because no one else is even uh, close to as as wealthy as she is. So she's secure in a way that doesn't make sense to really get bogged down in. Mm -hmm. Um, But the principle still applies that, you know, what you're talking about is people, it's character assassination. We can talk about what her views mean and we can talk about why they might be correct or incorrect. And that's why we argue in the letter that we have to expose ideas to the um, daylights of counter arguments. But um, character assassination is really something very important. And the right to defend yourself, uh, especially in a society where you do have libel law, like in the United Kingdom, this, this, is, an, this is a necessary um, thing to do. And... I'm like the language of safety is also something that I just I think that that has to be on the table to talk about. Why do her views um, put people in harm's way? Why that has to actually be established. These types of uh, claims can't just be um, lobbed and that's the end of the debate. And we just all accept that uh, rhetoric is physically harming people. We have to be very clear and precise about what we're saying. And I realize that even me um, saying that we have to actually um, withhold. our ability to just immediately accept that uh, views equal physical danger is something that's going to be misinterpreted and willfully misconstrued. Uh, But I think it has to be said the same people that make this argument. And this is such the hypocrisy is crazy. And I'm going to bring in my own personal experience. The same people that say that language is, is dangerous and violent are some of the same people who have told me that you can't hold a rapper accountable for even saying Mm -hmm. that they'll kick the door and shoot up everybody in the room. You can't, you can't because, because that has no influence on people, but those same people will say that JK Rowling is literally putting people in physical harm. The, the, the contradictions to me is it, it, we just have to actually um, get beyond the raw emotion and be able to deal with the fact that people's, people's names and reputations are being destroyed cavalierly. On the issue of safetyism, I agree completely. I mean, I think the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, made this case definitively. 
that this began in college. It actually began kind of, you know, earlier with overprotective parents trying to always shield their children from any potential exposure to harm, which is actually harmful to the children because it can even like biologically prevent the development of antibodies and their immune system if you're constantly trying to shield them from germs. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it kind of extended to that college mindset of any ideas that are upsetting become... uh, creating this unsafe space and therefore the students need to be protected by the administration, even from exposure to them. And now they've transported that into the workplace, even into newsrooms. I think every single media outlet, including my own um, has heard people claiming that, Oh, what you publish makes my workplace unsafe. That is an incredibly odious and pernicious climate to be creating to equate uh, disagreeable ideas. That's madness. That's madness. And that ought to be combated and condemned with you know the fullest force possible because nothing is more dangerous to academia or journalism or free discourse than that so let but let's talk about the jk rowling example and also one other um the debate in which she's involved is an incredibly contentious debate that involves very vicious accusations on both sides yeah it is true jk rowling is constantly accused of being a danger to trans people putting their lives at risk by her rhetoric but if you read that letter that she wrote the last one that kind of definitive essay she accused trans advocates of practicing a form of conversion therapy by saying that a lot of the motive for parents wanting their children to transition from male to female or female to to male is to avoid having them be gay. So I'd rather have my daughter become a man and date women than stay a woman and become lesbian. Um, Anyone who defends trans rights in the UK is instantly called misogynistic, that they're trying to destroy the right of women to have female spaces because trans women aren't really women, especially without having gender. So the debate is very contentious on both sides. What J.K. Rowling did and what, what Camille asked about went way beyond that, which is what she used the billions of dollars that she has or the billion dollars that she's worth, her unlimited resources combined with the extremely permissive or restrictive libel laws in the UK that are very favorable to the plaintiff in a way that that the US, for example, is not, to threaten to destroy the school for using her as an example of somebody who is a problematic uh, writer and to ask the question whether her bad views can be separated from her art, whether you can still like Harry Potter despite viewing her views in this debate as being odious. If we're if we're defending free discourse, we should be defending the right of the school to express that opinion and the right of J.K. Rowling to defend herself. That's not what she did. She tried to prevent that debate by threatening to destroy the school financially and forcing them to abandon the views that they held as the only way that they could engage in self-preservation, which to me is a, a strong inconsistency with the principles of the letter, which again, doesn't impugn the principles of the letter, but does suggest that maybe the people who signed it aren't really such authentic devotees to those principles when it entails something other than protecting their own prerogatives. The other example that I'd rather avoid because I actually feel conflicted about it since I was the one responsible bringing it to public life, but everyone knows about it now and it's weird to not talk about it is the one involving Barry Weiss. Um, 
You know, when she got hired by the New York Times along with Brett Stevens, I wrote an article essentially saying, Brett, Ste- stop focusing on Brett Stevens. The much more important person here is Barry Weish. I promise you she's going to be way more influential in the public discourse than Brett Stevens is. And I recounted her history in college and, and after in trying to get professors from being denied tenure for excessive criticism of Israel, for punishing uh, professors at Columbia who were deemed too pro-Arab and too anti-Israel, for equating people who advocate boycotts with anti-Semitism and bigotry and seeming to be comfortable with new laws that would be designed to punish them. I'd love to have a conversation with Barry about whether she's evolved from those college years and and that activism that I brought to light in in that article. Um, And there's a lot of other examples like that where, you know, for years it's been Muslims and pro-Palestinian activists and leftists who have been silenced and punished and sanctioned on campus. And there is a question of why didn't these elites who have signed this open letter object back then when the views that were being restricted in sanctions were ones that they don't necessarily advocate. That I do think is a legitimate question. And what I actually have been saying and hoping is that by affirming these principles, even the people who in the past have been comfortable violating them will think differently going forward about the rights of those who hold views that they find um, offensive. That's what I think the value of this kind of a open letter can be is to galvanize support for these principles where previously they didn't exist. Well, well I agree with you 100% on that. Uh, I think people actually, it, it, it's a valuable lesson. People actually have to be able to evolve and to become more tolerant. And I would also just say that, you know, what my views were and what I did in college, uh, I really don't want to be uh, relevant and applicable in the HR departments that employ me uh, in my late 30s. That's, it seems to me that this kind of limitless reaching back, and I don't know if she has um, what her views on her college activism. I, I, I don't like to be, and often am, um, thrust into the role of like um, being her advocate. Um, I'm her friend and, and I think she's actually like quite a, a wonderful person and has a crazy public persona that also has to do with people um, kind of treating people as ideas and, and, and epithets and, and the kind of hysteria around her online has become something else, which I think I probably react to in a protective way because when you see up close what is going on, it's really despicable. Um, now, I don't know like what the evolution of reviews is, but I know that like myself, if you're bringing up what my views were at 19 years old, uh, and I'm 39 now, it's, it's as irrelevant as, 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 you know, I have said this on Twitter, like Ibram Kendi wrote in college, he's our leading, our nation's leading voice on racial matters in college. He wrote that we have to hold open the possibility that white people are aliens. <laughs> this never actually comes up. With, people don't hold him to account for that, nor should they. He was in college. Ooh. That's why I said I'm a little bit conflicted because I agree. I've said many times that and it's really true. It's like the thing for which I am most grateful in this world is that there was no internet when I was 20. 
um, yes. for everyone <laughs> would record my views. But, you know, with Barry, she's she's not 50. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when she went to the New York Times, she was 33. It was a paucity of public record. And there was a continuity between that college activism and, and the writing that she was doing in my view. And I actually, I sent her a a message after that letter saying, Hey, I'd love at some point, given the role I played in bringing to light what you did in college to have a discussion with you about how you view that now. And I do think it is odd how she's become such a figure of lightning rod for it's there's something really psychologically complex about i mean i'm a huge critic of a lot of what she's written i i get that but why she provokes this visceral hatred um that a lot of worse people don't i think is really an interesting question people don't talk about richard spencer like this no it's it's, it's true it's true there's there's a dismissive there's a dismissiveness of someone like Richard Spencer. We don't have to take any time to analyze his views. He's bad, of course. But Barry, I mean, are you kidding? The the fact yeah. that she's in the temple doing things that are perhaps uh, not not consistent with the values of the high the priest nearest enemy, it becomes all the about problem. Example making the nearest yeah. enemy, you know. And Glenn, I'm I'm actually really grateful to you for bringing that one up because I was planning on it. I, I consider Barry a very dear friend and I, I adore her as a human. We disagree on plenty of things and have had some of those conversations on the podcast. In fact, a similar sort of conversation to what you were alluding to um, about anti-Semitism and the context in which the charge um, is often applied to people. Uh, and I, I think, you know, I would commend that to people. I won't try to, to restate Barry's argument here. I, I am curious, Glenn, because I just don't know if you responded to it publicly, but I, I feel fairly confident you've probably seen it. Like David French, who at the time of the college events that Barry was involved in, was, I believe, the chairman of FIRE, wrote a column for National Review in which he defended Barry and suggested that what took place on campus was quite a bit more complicated than is generally perceived. And I think he was specifically disagreeing with some aspects, or at least trying to contextualize some aspects of your account. But yeah. I think it also is sort of a broader, at least when I read it today, it it seems like something that would probably benefit people who I see often castigate her for, in some cases, like trivial things, like the immigrants, we get the job done saga, which I'm a first generation American. My family, my mother came here when she was pregnant with me. I was born here. I'm a citizen. I also consider myself an immigrant. And if someone said that about me, I wouldn't consider it racist. You know, the two most frequently cited things that represent Barry's awfulness as a public person offering commentary on the news of the day and events of the day are an episode from college and this particular instance um, of her mistakenly suggesting someone was an immigrant. Let me just push back about uh, against that a little bit, because the, the thing about the immigrant comment is utter bullshit. It was obviously just a good faith mistake she was making in an attempt to praise somebody. And it was I, I just it's barely worth a conversation except for observing how insane the discourse was surrounding it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So just let's leave that aside. Um, yeah. I, I respect David French a lot. Um, and I heard, I actually listened to, you recently had him on, on your podcast and I, I listened to, to the whole thing. Um, and, and, and 
I, I read, it was a response to what I had written. It was directly responding to what I had written. Um, you know, I think if you go back and, and, and look at a lot of those examples, like the clearer ones are ones he didn't address. Um, there was this issue of uh, this Palestinian American Muslim scholar who was an anthropologist who was making an anthropological argument about why Israel doesn't have entitlement to the West Bank or Gaza. Mm-hmm. And she was considered a star in anthropology around the world. Her tenure track was paved, you know, uh, with no impediments. And then suddenly some West Bank settler um, started a petition saying that she should be denied tenure. I think it was at Radcliffe or I forget exactly where it was. And Barry jumped on board on that Hmm. um, as though she had any competence to judge the anthropological expertise and validity of the arguments being made. She was obviously advocating for the denial of tenure for this professor for the crime of having uh, criticize Israel. And I think that, you know, to the extent that Barry provokes a lot of strong feelings, it is because she is such a strong defender of the government of Israel, the state of Israel, which has become increasingly rare for people of her age, um, where there's a generational gap Hmm. among Jews worldwide that younger Jews are realizing that Israel itself is an extremely illiberal state, becoming more illiberal and headed toward apartheid. And for her to be such a virulent defender is, I think, a valid reason to find her ideologically objectionable. The fact that it spills over into so much personal animus is in some sense to me just a reflection of the fact that people feel very strongly, I think rightfully so. I regard, you know, what the Israelis are doing to the two million people in Gaza as one of the worst crimes against humanity on the planet. And so anyone who defends that or who lends support to it is somebody that I'm going to feel very negatively about politically and ideologically. I think it's totally valid. Um, And I also think, you know, you look at both sides of the equation, like, yeah, Barry provokes a lot of weird, intense animus, but she also became a star very quickly, right? Mm. Like, so there must be something unique about her. She went on Bill Maher all the time. Morning Joe loves her. You know, the entire kind of right wing and and libertarian center right discovered her and both of you guys love her so much. So there's obviously (laughs) something... You know, we can't just talk about her like she's just some ordinary pundit. (laughs) Like she's obviously resonating on both sides. Um, And I think there's part of it that's valid ideologically and politically. And then there's part of it that's just like a weird psychology that because she's this very kind of, you know, she's like a hip young lesbian living in Manhattan, dating a woman who's a reporter at the New York Times. It just doesn't seem like she should have the politics that she has. And I think people find that really upsetting. Yeah. I, I will say I'm, I'm also a forceful defender of hers online. And oftentimes I I feel, I get so upset when I feel like folks are just being malicious and unfair uh, and really derogatory, like the nasty ad hominems that I see directed at her. She she can't defend herself from all of those things. And in some instances, especially when it's like fire from inside the place where she works or worked, I feel even more inclined to sort of clap back on her behalf. Um, and actually with you too, Thomas, and I, I won't put you in a position where you have to discuss your places of employment and what's happening with you and your colleagues. But I've seen a similar dynamic there where folks will... Yeah, swat at you 
And I, I feel very much the same way that you know, you're probably not necessarily in a position um, to push back in the same way. Um, and I know that generally speaking, the New York Times is supposed to have some prohibition against that. I think Thomas is actually, I think it's, I think Thomas is actually the new Barry, you know, like the I've said vitriol and the intensity of hatred being directed at, at you yeah. is, is shocking to me. And you know, like, sometimes I think that part of it is when you're newly arrived, you're kind of like new meat. Like you've been at it for a long time. You're a public intellectual. You've been, you've written two books. You've been, you know, writing stuff, but like being thrust into this kind of like public controversy at the forefront, the way you are, at least from my knowledge is really the first time that you're in this kind of a spotlight. And it's very difficult to navigate without making mistakes. Like the thing that you said, you know, on, on Rolling Stone about the way that I was, excluded from the letter. And I think the same thing was true of Barry. You know, she just became this like mm-hmm. lightning rod. But I, I I agree with Camille. I I I am starting to see the same kind of like utterly unhinged hatred for you. People digging into your memoirs, picking stuff out to put it into the worst possible light, ripping it out of context, just so out of proportion to how you're conducting yourself in the discourse and the dialogue. I just wonder how you're reacting to that um i know it's easy to say like i'm fine but i i know from experience it's not easy and so i i wonder especially kind of being new to that how you're looking at that and could you, yeah, could well, you, you to, in your response thomas would you mind speaking to some of the the racial dynamics that yeah, exist I, in I, that? you can't talk about it without that yeah. um you're absolutely right that I, i've been in the game for i published my first book in, in 2010 um, and I've been writing for magazines for about six years, but this is completely new. I mean, the kind of intensity of attention that's that's come from publishing the letter and the kind of anger uh, that's come from it and from some other writing I do around race, basically since I published my second book in October, um, saying that we can't really defeat racism without ultimately rejecting the categories it imposes, the categories it creates. Um, that has been something that speaks to what you said, Glenn, about I, uh, I have ideas that people think I should not have based on my identity. And it seems to act as some kind of um, um, disagreement that goes beyond mere disagreement with ideas, but a kind of sense of betrayal that gets very uh, emotionally driven. I read things about myself online and my wife and I kind of laugh because it's so far away from how um, I understand myself to be or anybody that knows me understands me to be, or many people who actually interact with me in quite good faith on Twitter. It's like what you said about Barry. There's a lot of hatred, but there's an extraordinary amount of actual like love support, um, like even like getting cool um, online with you, like people reach out to you. Sometimes it's not even who you expect. And and, and these things all mingle together. But there's a sense of like um, my ideas are wrong for who I am. Other people express the same ideas as me actually don't get um, the hate. Like I'm not aware of anybody hating Adolf Reed, for example, the way that um, I get hated, he would say some of the very same things about um, the, the fact that race doesn't exist and that you can't solve racism by focusing and reifying identity differences. Tanahasi Coates can blurb racecraft, which is essentially like um, the, the book that I would say uh, defines the kind of argument I'm trying to make through personal terms. Nobody mm-hmm. cares that Tanahasi Coates uh, also thinks racecraft is deeply insightful, but but because I think it has to do with something about um, 
ideas about what mixed race people are, are, are like, a kind of suspicion that mixed race people can be traitorous. Um, the fact that I don't live in America, the fact that my wife is white, I think that I would have a lot of cover for my opinions uh, were, my, were my wife to present racially the way that my wife is supposed to. Mm. Um, these things get mingled up and get spit back in, at you online and kind of um, disguised as a mere disorder uh, viewpoint. But it's something much more visceral than that and deeper than that. And that's why I think that a lot of what Bear catches does have a whiff of misogyny and anti-Semitism to it. There's a kind of gleeful abuse of her. And I think that a lot of what you have to talk about in our new discourse, our new uh, progressive discourse, is the fact that a lot of our racist and sexist and homophobic impulses haven't all gone away, but they're not able to be released uh, in ways that they used to be. But you can kind of release some of the hatred for blacks um, by picking the right black target to tear <laughs> down. Some of the hatred you have for Jews for picking the bad Jew to tear down. And when I have some of these, because a lot of it does come from actual uh, hardcore white progressives online. When I have some of these white guys saying that I'm basically an Uncle Tom. Do, do, they, say basically, do they say basically or do they just they make the allegations? There's something that I'm like, actually, like they can release some of what they'd like to release. You can't convince me that this is not... Um, so I, I think that we're, we're in a situation where, you know, Twitter is toxic. Somebody has to be a villain there. And you're right. When you come into the scene in some way, uh, it's like being fresh meat. Yeah. Well, we, we've been going for a little bit, so we should probably wrap up. I am actually glad that you said the thing about Twitter a moment ago uh, in contrasting that with the story that Glenn told about connecting with this community of people online who you probably never would have connected with otherwise, um, and him arriving there to troll and finding some something much more significant um, and meaningful there in terms of the relationships. It's interesting. I think it is definitely true that the tools that have come into existence, the sort of instant publica um, publication of ideas and engagement on platforms like Twitter, anonymous people engaging, um, those things are having an impact on the way our politics and society are evolving. But I do think that they can be forces for good uh, if we're only willing to let them be. And a lot of it has so much to do with our own instincts and impulses. Um, so I hope that we can be the kind of species that's able to leverage these tools for all of their good um, beneficial attributes um, without completely destroying ourselves and imagining everyone else is a monster that needs to be uh, completely dismantled. So I'll, I'll give the last word to, to either or both of you um, if you've got something you want to share before we punch out of here. Um, but I'm grateful for your joining me for this interesting and thought-provoking conversation. I just want to say it was a pleasure. And um, this is kind of, for me, proof of why we should actually make time to actually talk not just tweet at, not just dunk tweet or retweet or, or, or assume that we understand a person from uh, an argument. We should separate people in arguments sometimes and sit down and talk to each other. And this was wonderful. Thank you for organizing the thing, Camille. Thank you for showing up, Glenn. And it's, it's been really cool. And there are positive sides to it. But I think that the positive sides of Twitter um, often happen when it gets beyond Twitter. Where you actually have mm -hmm. um, stained uh, conversations with people. 
Yeah. And I just, the, the one thing I would add is, you know, when, when Camille asked me to do this, you know, my first thought was like, yeah, oh God, just what I need. Like have a conversation <laughs> yeah. with Camille and Thomas Chatterton and Williams. Um, I don't have enough like conflict and, and, and grounds for, for being attacked. Um, yeah. But you know, I also knew it was going to be a, a very illuminating conversation um, and therefore didn't really think twice about it. And I think that's one of the things that I hope um, the letter inspires actually is there are a lot of us who are fortunate not to be subject to this kind of cancellation, not be subject to these kind of threats of coercion that are used subtly to ruin people's reputations. Um, and I think those of us who are have the obligation to use our platforms to try and create as much space as possible to allow other people who are a little bit less secure um, to be able to have that space as well. And it can just only grow from there. Um, so, you know, as much controversy as the letter provoked to me, it was kind of a testament to the value that it served. Thank you. You're beyond cancellation. I'm not, I'm not there yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're Don't teetering. Lie. You're teetering on the border. We're going to see on which side you fall. <laughs> I'll, I'll take care of you, Thomas. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm moving into Camille's compound. <laughs> Thank you guys. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan 